0: From Luke uh, chapter 14, we have another encounter of Jesus with the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? We meet them often in the Gospels. They were a religious group, very legalistic. They were focused on the externals and the, the, the ceremonies. And when we hear about the Pharisees, we could easily say, Oh, yes, the Pharisees, those proud religious crowd... Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. But we're careful because we understand there's a Pharisee in each one of us. It is the flesh, and we ask God to search our own hearts also. Pharisees means those who are set apart. It was during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament that there was a moral decline in Israel So there was a need to to go back to keeping the law. So the Pharisees were established and they devoted themselves to keeping the law in every tiny detail. And in time, it became a system of hypocrisy and judgment and pride. And these Pharisees, in their flowing religious garments, they thrived on the praise of men and the recognition of men. They were very quick to judge others. They were looking to find fault. What a horrible culture that would be to live in, wouldn't it? Where you feel that you are being judged in every moment because you are not measuring up. How horrible that would be to have in a church, in a family, or in any way that you feel that you are being judged all the time rather than loved and accepted, etc. But this was the... the, the environment, the culture in Israel under the eyes of the Pharisees. By this time, they had already had it in for Jesus. We remember back in chapter 11, it says, and he said these things to them, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. This is how they were poised when they looked at Jesus, when they saw him, when they listened to him. It was to catch him so that they could accuse him. But Jesus was not hiding. He knew what was in their hearts, and he ministered and healed and did miracles before them all the time. And he would often heal specifically on the Sabbath day. Now, you remember the Sabbath was given as a day of rest, a provision for for people to rest on the Sabbath that they wouldn't work. But the Jews, in their um, desire to be so specific that they wouldn't break the laws on the Sabbath, they created 39 categories of what would be defined as work. For example, reaping and sowing and writing, etc. And then they had subcategories under each one of those. So there was literally thousands of laws that you had to try and meticulously keep on the Sabbath. So the irony is the Sabbath, which was to be a day of rest, became the most burdensome day of all. And they particularly eyed Jesus on the Sabbath, that he wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. This is our third encounter when Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Remember in the last chapter, the woman who was bent over and Jesus healed her, that happened on the Sabbath. And there was an indignant response to that. And they said, how can you heal on the Sabbath, etc.? And Jesus said, hypocrites, don't you loosen your ox on the Sabbath should this woman not be loose from her infirmity. Because certainly in the laws of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, if there was an animal or a person that was in distress, it was understood that you could help in an act of mercy towards them. We remember also back in Luke 6, there was the story of the man with the withered hand. Again, it was on the Sabbath. And it says the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. And he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And then he asked the question, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? When he looked around, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he healed him, and they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this now that we're going to look at is the third time that Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. And we find Jesus at the guest at the house of one of the leading Pharisees. And that should catch our attention straight away. These were the ones who were always in opposition to him. He knew they were trying to catch him, and yet he went to one of their houses on the Sabbath. I believe that Jesus would always want to extend an opportunity to whoever may respond, even up to the last moments of opportunity. So let's join it here in Luke 14. It happened, he went to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and there it is, they watched him closely. We've already established what that means. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. This is hydropikos in the Greece. Hydro means water, and this condition is like edema with a, with a building up of fluid in the body tissue because of failing organs or whatever. It was a serious condition, and we believe that that's what's being referred to here. So here is the situation. On the Sabbath, Jesus invited. There just happens to be a man who, who is sick there, and this certainly smells of a setup doesn't it, that they, they set the stage that they would catch Jesus out. In verse 3, it says, and Jesus answering. And don't you love that? Because no one's asked the question. <laughs> but there certainly were questions in the heart. So Jesus answering and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 4, they kept silent. And he took him, and he healed him, and he let him go. Amazing, whatever that internal issue was with the organs, etc. In a moment, there was a miracle, and this man was healed. And he probably, Jesus probably ushered him out, so he wouldn't be the center of what would happen next. But he could have uh, an encounter and teaching with the Pharisees. Verse 5. And he answered them. Again, it's interesting, because no one's asked the question yet. But again, he goes on to say, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And this is similar to the last healing. Remember, he asked a similar question when he called them hypocrites because of course they all did and they knew it. So in verse six, we read, they could not answer him regarding these things. or the NIV says, and they had nothing to say. It's amazing how Jesus could often say things or ask penetrating questions that would, uh, you know, leave you with nothing to say. Verse, uh, in the last chapter, we read that they were humiliated when Jesus said this. Why? Because their hypocrisy was exposed. They knew if they would answer, they would either condemn themselves or that they would vindicate him. So they kept silent. And then he continues with a parable. In verse 7, he told a parable. Now, this parable highlights the need for humility. This may not be so needful for so many here this morning. No, we all understand that pride is a sad condition of our fallen nature, and this certainly applies to all of us. So he told a parable to those who were invited to the guests when he noted how they chose the best places or the most honored places. And when they would gather, it would t- typically be like in a U-shape of couches and tables, and the host, the most important, would stand at the top of the U-shape, and based on your status or how well you knew the host would depend and determine your seat. And they all wanted to get the seat closest to the host so that they could demonstrate how important they were, and they could bathe in the praise of men that's the situation and Jesus noted this he noted how that they wanted to sit in the most honored places we read in matthew In verse uh, six of chapter 23, when Jesus is lambasting the Pharisees in that famous chapter, he says, They love the most honored places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplace and they love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi. Don't call me Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, God in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And here it is. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility. This is to be found in the spirit of the church. This is the attitude of Christ himself, of course, and we would expect and we love to see that in the church family where there is humility and love and acceptance and we do not have hierarchy, but we are one family together under, under Christ. Humility is beautiful, but pride is so ugly. Pride seeks to exalt itself, wants to be noticed. Do you see me? Do you see what I do? Do you see how important I am? Do you see how I serve? Everyone wants to be noticed, wants to be praised, whereas humility would quietly serve before God and be thankful to do it uh, unto the Lord. So we read him addressing this principle that is basic to all humanity. This ungodly pursuit of recognition and glory and honor before men in this world. Ephesians 6.6 says, Do not do this with eye service, as men pleases, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord. Do you hear that? And not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Humility is so beautiful. You see it, you sense it, but pride, it is out of place. It does not belong, certainly in the Christian's life or in the Christian church and fellowship. We all see it and sense it. We have it rising in our own hearts. And of course, we fail and we miss the target. But it should not be dominant in our lives and in our church family. It would be like being in a restaurant you're sitting down, you smell that the food is cooking, and you, oh, beautiful aromas, and you, the candle, the t- everything's beautiful. And then suddenly someone out the back opens the back door, and this waft comes from the alleyway of this, you know, the, the rubbish bins. And you're like, ooh, that does not belong, Right? Or you're sitting listening to a beautiful orchestra and all the harmonies and instruments, so it's just beautiful. And all of a sudden, and you're like, oh, oh, that does not belong. And that's like the flesh in the Christian life or in the Christian fellowship, where there is beautiful harmony and unity and fellowship and the desire to honour God. And all of a sudden, nya, 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 and you're like, oh. The criticism, the negativity, the disunity, the dissent. And you're like, wait, that's the flesh. It's not the spirit. It does not bring honor to God. And this is what Jesus is addressing in the hearts of the Pharisees. We are told not to live in partiality, agape love is not partial. It doesn't love because you're this or you're that. It doesn't disqualify you because you are this or you are that. In James 2, it says, If there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand here or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's good, isn't it? So good. The Word of God is so wonderful and simple and instructive, and we bow our hearts before it. We see how we miss the target. We see our need for the Spirit of God. And when we yield to that, all oh, what God gives is so beautiful, and we see that in our fellowship. Humility. Unity, fellowship, we don't take it for granted. Ah, that is beautiful. When one comes in, whether he's rich or poor, whether he's wearing fine apparel, to use the the language of the text or not, whether he's black or white or young or old or whatever, it doesn't matter in God's house. For God's love, God's grace binds our hearts in wonderful fellowship. He goes on to say in verse 8 of James 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, the law of love, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And don't we see that in the world, of course, The division, the comparison, honor here but not here, but in the church, isn't that wonderful and refreshing that it is different? The Pharisees' religious system was all about hierarchy. It was all about honoring some and dishonoring others. It was all about the externals. They would seek the best places. So Jesus says to them, let's go back to our text in verse... He says, when you are invited to anyone to a wedding feast, and he's again, it's a lesson, a parable, if you will, it's an example. Do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, that's the host, and him, the more honorable, come and say to you, give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. And then your, the host may come and say, Friend, go up higher. And then you will have glory or you will be honored in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. This is an echo from Proverbs 25:6. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than you uh, would make that choice. Now, here, the wedding feast there is also a spiritual lesson. Jesus is very seldom only speaking about ethics, but there's a deeper lesson and teaching here, and there's an allusion regarding the kingdom. Who will be the honored guests in the kingdom? It's those who have humbled themselves before Jesus, before the Lord. That's why Jesus said, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you will not enter in, right? Right? And then he hits the principle in verse 11. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So he said all of that to say this, highlighting the beauty of humility and how God honors humility. And he lays out this principle. If you exalt yourself or humble yourself, and this, of course, is a lesson for all of us, all disciples. Peter puts it this way in 5.5. Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Now, that's fitting, isn't it? If you're younger, you submit to the elders, whether that's physically or perhaps even spiritually, maturity of in the church, etc. But listen to the next line. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another all of us submitting one to another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves unto the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. What is the greatest example in the Bible or perhaps ever that we could think of? Of someone who was so high, but through humility became so low, and then was exalted. Jesus. We read of that in in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is writing, instructing the church. He says, listen, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves lest you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And then he says, let this mind or attitude that was in Christ also be in you. And then he describes what we call the the kenosis or the condescension or the incarnation, the humility of Christ, God in the flesh, that he he became a man and being found as a man, he, he humbled himself all the way to the cross. And then we read at the end of that passage, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. What is the greatest example we could find in the scriptures of one who exalted himself so high, highly, and then was brought so low? I'll read to you from Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your hearts, and that's the iniquity spoken of in Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen. Iniquity was found in Lucifer's heart when he said this, and this is often known as the five I wills of Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. And yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Wow. He exalts the humble, and he abases the proud. So then Jesus addresses the host. He said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers or your relatives or uh, the, the rich neighbors lest they invite you back and you be repaid. Now notice, You have to see what's the principle he is teaching. He's not saying you can't invite your relatives. That's not the point. He's addressing the motive of the heart. He's saying that you invite these people because you know, look at the last word, because you know you'll be repaid. You're living in this give and take, uh, payback relationship you only do it because you're going to get something back you bless because you know that you'll be blessed in return and that's at the heart of the motive there not not to uh, to do that in the again in the church in the body we do not think that way we do not serve to put someone in debt to us right we serve as unto the lord it's not you owe me now That's not grace. That's not the economy that we are to live in. And again, we find another higher spiritual truth in this. And it's this. Who is invited to the messianic banquet? Who is the invitation of salvation extended to? It's to those who cannot pay back. It's to those who cannot pay anything. This is the glorious gospel of grace, that salvation is extended to each one. Of us. There is none that are excluded, none too sinful, none too far. And you cannot pay and you are not asked to pay, but it is you are saved by grace in a gift. I love Luke 7 in that parable. It says, And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. How wonderful that is. Jesus continues, verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's the principle, not just favoring some and neglecting others, not living in this payback system, but living in grace, which is certainly, obviously... uh, mentioned here regarding salvation and entrance to the kingdom. He says, you will be blessed. God sees the heart, the motive. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints. God is not unjust to forget. But there will be a reward at the resurrection of the just. And now to end, he closes with one last parable. This is the parable of the banquet, starting in verse 15. He says, when he's, and now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is he, who shall, shall eat bread in the kingdom. Now, we don't know if he said this sincerely or he was cynical, but what he said was True fully incredibly true how blessed it will be to eat bread in the kingdom of God and Jesus had taught the humble will enter and that you cannot pay and now he gives an invitation here we go and then he said a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and what would happen the first invitations would go out they would respond, Yes, we're going to come. But verse 17, and he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for now all things are, are made ready. I love that phrase, Come, for all things are now ready. That speaks to us of the gospel, doesn't it? Think of a beautiful banquet, feast, hall. Everything has been prepared. You don't pay anything. You just freely come and you partake. It's not because of who you are or what you've done. It's because you've been invited and you respond to it. And it's beautiful and it's all paid for. And someone has set it up for you and you just come and partake. That's like the gospel of grace. This alludes to the finished work of Christ, for he finished the work, he paid the price, and now salvation is offered to all, and this invitation goes out to all. But verse 18, they all with one accord began to make excuses. Now with some of these things that are said, there is some, some, some validity to them, but they were used as weak excuses not to attend. Even though they had said they would come, when the time came, they did not. God has sent his messenger also in Jesus. And all through the church age, echoing with the gospel and preachers and churches and Christians, the invitation continues even as we speak today. All has been made ready, just come. So the first excuse was this I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Now, doesn't that strike you as a bit strange? Would you buy a piece of land without seeing it? Not normally. Doesn't make too much sense. But even if that's true, it doesn't change the fact that the land will be there tomorrow. Go see it tomorrow but it's an excuse, a weak excuse. Verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. We could say the same. You didn't test them before. You didn't see them before. And can't it wait until tomorrow? We've been waiting for this banquet. The invitations went out. All things have been made ready. And in the last minute, you're going to say you can't come because of your oxen. Not good planning or a very weak excuse. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now that's a bit more understandable. No, i just (laughs) jumped. But again, wait a minute. You're saying last minute you got married and now you can't come? It was an excuse. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe we've said it. Different times in our life. Oh, I would follow God, but. I've I've seen over the years, many people say, oh, wow, this is what I've been looking for. The Bible and grace. And if I, oh, wow, this is it. This is the turning point. Gone. You know, we understand that. We understand excuses. We understand that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We understand that sometimes we need to take sides with God against ourselves. Hello? Sometimes we need to act in convictions rather than convenience. And we say, you know what, God? I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be a disciple. Discipleship doesn't happen by accident. It's a purposed life. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house said, that's okay. No, look, he got angry. He said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind." those who are regarded as deficient in society, the publicans, the sinners, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, etc. If they won't accept it, we go on. And we, we, we invite those who cannot repay. We invite the undesirables, the outcasts. So the servant did that. And he says, Master, it's done, but there is still room And the master said to the servant, go out in the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. And I hope that moves our heart this morning. As we heard earlier, our our, our need in the great commission, that there is still room, that there is still time, that that there, there are people who are lost, that heaven and hell, they are real places that this is God's revealed, uh, inspired word that we are studying and considering this morning, that this is Jesus who is speaking in this passage, that there is still room. The master said, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them. It's urge them, constrain them strongly, show the necessity that a person has to, to find salvation, to know God. For we were made to know God, And without him, there is something drastically missing in our life. And he ends in the last verse, For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. And it is so true that blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. You're not going to care where you're sitting. You're just going to be so thankful to be there. How tragic that those were invited when everything was made ready, but they would not taste of his supper. It's no small thing to be a leap, be, be a believer, to be a disciple, to be one who prays, to be one who shares and goes and follows. It is a high calling, and we we treasure the, the opportunity and the privilege of that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning just for another opportunity to open this book, to be your students, to be disciples, to be those who hear the word and to act upon it. We pray you'd use this in our hearts and lives in our church to instruct us, to move us, to motivate us, We thank you for that. We thank you for the, for the simplicity of the gospel, for the gift of salvation. Maybe there is someone listening online today or even here with us today, and you're not sure of salvation, what it means to be saved, to know Jesus as your savior. And here is the gospel that, that God loves you. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. There is no other way, there is no other path, there is no other door, there is no other name than Jesus. He is the Savior, there is no other. Put your faith in him today, in humility and in faith. Just say, Jesus, save me today. I I recognize that I I, I am a sinner and I have need of salvation. I want to know you. Please draw me. I trust you and thank you and use this in all of our lives and we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.